when we talk about conversos or we talking about crypto Jews, do not expect normativism. Don't expect to find anything that looks like the normative Judaism that we know, because it's not the case. Because those people have been for 500 years, they have been keeping a very low profile. So you don't want to do anything that's going to be too overtly Jewish. Welcome to Trending Jewish. I am Rachel Burgess here with my co-host, Ryan Schwartzman. Good afternoon. We're, we're actually recording in the afternoon. We're usually actually, early birds. I know. This is, um, this is a, little, a little bit different for us, but I mean, it's hard to tell in a studio with no windows in it, but it's... it's it's a, it's a downcast, miserable, rainy day outside, but we're, we're cheery in here. Yes, it's, uh, we keep the sunshine going in the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, and despite what television says, it is not always sunny in Philadelphia. I've never seen that show. It's very good. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a good... Danny kind of, DeVito, it's... You know, it's a, you know, if you kind of need some kind of dumb humor, like it's, you know, it's something you can kind of vegetate with get a couple laughs out of it the you can also go visit the pub where they frequent quite a bit that's i think right near um penn's landing can get some good uh fish and chips there all right i'll put that on my list of things to do all right not that you don't have enough things to do because we still have to eventually get an update with your uh running training with uh john cutler Let's delay that update. <laughs> so we are here at RRC with Rabbi Jordi Jendra. Um, he's actually somebody else you can also work out with too. He's a very uh, spends a lot of time at the gym, so he can be another. He looks workout. very intense. I'm intimidated already. What? <laughs> 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 um, so. Jordy, welcome to Trending Jewish, our podcast. Thank um, you very much. I am going to need a little bit of help with your background. So Rabbi Jordan Jendra was born in Barcelona, Spain, um, and he was ordained at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College in 2006. He holds a PhD in medieval Jewish history from, is it Universidad de uh, Girona? Girona? Yeah. In, um, in Spain and uh, master's in Semitic languages with a specialization in Hebrew and Aramaic from the Universidad de Barcelona. Yes. Ah, yes, I'm getting the Spanish. <laughs> he taught um, an introduction to Talmud at RRC for several years as well as religious studies in Wilson College. He worked at a, a translator. He knows all sorts of languages and has even translated websites for me in Norwegian. <laughs> He teaches several courses on Jewish history and Jewish thought from the Universidad Nacional de Educación uh, Distancia. Yes. And that's a prominent distance education uh, a, university based in Spain. That's a, similar pro, that's a similar to Open University in England. He's also published several articles and books in Jewish issues. And I actually didn't realize this, but you actually completed the first translation of the Passover Haggadah in your native language of Catalan. Yes. 
And one of the things that I thought was very curious about your background is that you were actually, your family was a Converso family? Yes, part of my family is. Was it like an open secret in your family? Like, was it something that everybody knew that you were, that they were part of the Converso family? Or was it something that was never talked about? How, um, how do you go about finding out what that history is in your family? It depends on how did you find an open open secret, but it was kind of an open secret. I mean, we knew um, it's some a tradition that comes down. So my granddad was the one who was telling me, "This is how you pray. You pray with your head covered. You pray in this way. You pray. You, you know. You know what I mean." There, there was a an awareness that this is how those kind of other things that you have to do. Now the issue is. When you compare those traditions that are different from family to family, because remember, this is like a fragmented memory. Mm-hmm. Everybody remembers something different. This is like when you go to class, oh, you skip class and you need the note from that class. And you're gonna ask three of your friends, hey, can you pass me the note? And everybody's gonna give you the notes. And what's gonna happen is that those notes are gonna be totally different. And the question is, were you exactly in the same class? I mean, so the same thing happens here. I mean, every family, every every family, every town will create its own tradition. It will create its own fragmented memory of what means Judaism for them. We say that in Judaism, we don't have a dogma. I'm going to say I do not necessarily agree with this. I would say that we have a dogma, and it's very interesting because that dogma is the calendar. We know, and that's that's what comes to me. I mean, that was part of my family secret, if you want. Do you know when Pesach is? The question is, how many times have you heard from someone who tells you, oh, I'm Jewish, but I'm a very bad Jew. I don't go to synagogue, and, but I know that it's Pesach. I know that I should be Oh, I should not be eating this or eating that. Because you know where the holidays are, you're always going to, it's like it's ingrained in you that you, you're it's, always going to know. Correct. It, it's ingrained in you. It's a sign of identity. This is what I mean. I may not do it. I may not fast for Yom Kippur. I may not eat matzah. I mean, I may eat bread during Pesach. But somehow it's ingrained in your mind that this is what, you su- what you're supposed not to do, what you're supposed to do. So there is a sense of calendar. There is a sense of time. There is a sense that in such and such time, you're supposed to do such and such things. You know what I mean? So that's, that's I find this very interesting that overall there is this kind of a thing. Then, for instance, talking about traditions that come through the families. Um, I spent many hours in archives back in Spain and from time to time you see uh, an inquisitional process and you can see the prayers that they confess during those during those sessions of i'm going to say torture um, you recognize that there is a jewish background but it's totally it's a mishmash you know you understand it's it's a total mixing of christianity with Jewish elements, you can tell you can tell what prayer they're trying to reproduce mentally, but it's all like I remember one that talks about Saint Esther, Saint Saint Queen Esther. It's related mm. to Purim, mm. but by saying Saint Esther, you're kind of making her like your yeah Catholic Christ, you're, you're Christianizing the element, so you're Christianizing the element there. 
The other thing is that when we talk about conversers or we're talking about crypto Jews, do not expect normativism. Don't expect to find anything that looks like the normative Judaism that we know, because it's not the case. Because those people have been for 500 years, they have been keeping a very low profile. So you don't want to do anything that's going to be too overtly Jewish because you are not in contact with each other necessarily. You will keep only like fragmented memories of what Judaism means. This is the this is the first time we've we've spoken. I'm 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 fascinated to hear your story. Clearly, yeah. your your journey has has taken you on many twists and turns. And you know, I don't I don't know the the order, but I understand you you know you officially went through the conversion process to Judaism. You you studied Jewish texts on an academic level. You you, yeah. you decided and became a rabbi. I mean, can you? Okay. Take us through that process. Yes. Um, basically, this knowledge is in my family. I'm more curious about that background. So I, I go back to the synagogue. I'm 14, 15. And we're talking about a country that has only, at that point, Spain probably had only 5,000 Jews in the whole country. So the Jewish community is very cliquish, is very small, is very closed in, in, in itself. Very different from what the Jewish community is today. Today in Barcelona, you have like four synagogues. Back in the, I'm gonna reveal my age, but <laughs> anyhow, back in the, back in the 80s, <laughs> you, ha- you only had uh, one synagogue. And that one synagogue was the only house for all the Jews. This has to do with, remember that during 40 years we had a dictatorship, so that has to do with a political environment that I will not talk about here. But uh, basically, we had only one synagogue, and everybody from all the spectrums, Ashkenaz and Sephardic, everybody was there. From conservative to ultra-Orthodox, everybody was there. So I decided to go, to go there. Uh, at the same time, I decided to study Hebrew all by myself. I mean, nobody, nobody was pushing me to do that. So I was attending Friday night services, I the morning services, I was becoming more and more active. I mean, what you can do as a teenager, you're becoming more active in that community. In 92, there was a split in the community and I went with the split. Uh, basically, to make the story short, you have two big groups because of politics. In 1960s, you have the independence of Morocco and you're gonna have many Moroccan Jews coming up to Spain, especially from what was the the Spanish protectorate in North Morocco. In the 80s, you have the dictatorships in Southern America. There you have um, Southern American Jews emigrating to Spain. But those two two groups have very different profiles because the Northern Moroccan Jew is going to be a a, a traditionalist Jew. It's going to be a Jew that's going to be very anchored in Sephardic traditions. It's going to be a Jew that it's basically commerce. They're going to make they're going to make their living based on commerce. On the other hand, the Jew that comes from Southern America, because remember they're escaping dictatorship, so the Jew that's coming from Southern America, you're going to have lawyers, you're going to have architects, you're going to have dentists, you're going to have liberal profession. In other words, the profile is totally different. Those people from Southern America, they come from a non-Orthodox background. But because we only had one synagogue, Orthodox and non-Orthodox had to live together. So sooner or later, 
there was a split. In 92, that split happened physically. And we created a non-Orthodox community that is still working. That's called Atit. Atit means future in Hebrew. So in 92, we began our services. In very, I mean, in living rooms of people. So every Friday night, it was the same show. I mean, I had the fax machine. I remember fax machine at home <laughs> back in those days. So I was passing fax. We had a phone tree. We were we were talking to each other. Hey, this weekend, I mean, this Friday is going to be a session site. So you bring the Coke, you bring this, you bring that. So the classical system, potluck, you know. So this is how we began to create. In 96, we were able, in 97, we were able to bring the first full-time rabbi. That's when I began to be very active in the community. And I began to find myself in the position that I know how to read Hebrew, I know how to interpret the text, I know how to do this, how to do that. We began to lead services. Now, at that point, Rabbi Edgar Knopf was the rabbi that we had. He lives in Israel, so he was traveling between Israel and Barcelona three times a year. He was the one who said to me, you need to go through a conversion process because this is abnormal. You are in the gray area. So you can, I mean, you are not one thing, not the other. You don't have the paperwork to, to, to prove your citizenship into Judaism if you want. I said, yeah, I mean, that's true. So you have to go through a conversion process. As many conversions, there was, uh, in me, there was kind of a, why do I have to go through all this? I'm already Jewish, so why do you want to? So that was a discussion that I had that lasted for a couple of months between him and me. And what he says is, look, at the end, a conversion, I mean, if we can do whatever you want. The problem is that then it's not just how you identify yourself, it's also how you're being recognized. And in any identity process, you have both the face and the tail in the same coin. It's how you identify yourself, but you also need to be recognized as that thing. It's not enough to say at the guy at the border at the airport, hey, hey, I'm American. You need to prove it by giving him that blue booklet, you know? <laughs> and that's the proof, and he will recognize that. So this, this is the exercise. So he told me, you need to go through a conversion process because this is a standard process that nobody will challenge. Because a conversion is a conversion, and it's a standard process for acquiring Jewish identity. So, okay, so I went through that. It took three years to go through that. It was a group, it was the first conversion that ever happened in Spain since 1492. So you can do the math. It was 500 years. And we were a group of 20-something people from all Spain. And we had the Bedin in Barcelona. Rather than going to London or going to Israel, it was easier to bring the Bedin to us than having 20-something people traveling around. So, and we did the mikveh at the beach in September. So that was right before her holidays that year. So that was very that was very emotional because for me, for many of us, it meant the end of a, of a process and the beginning of a new identity. So you don't resent having to go through that? I mean, we've we we spoke uh, the the issue on our on our on our last episode or came up of of patrilineal Jews in this in this country and many you know, resist and, and, you know, the idea that that they they have to undergo or some people believe they have to undergo a conversion process. They, you know, they are Jewish and that's, you know, that's how they see themselves. Uh, so well, do you have any re resentment or you feel like that was a, because, maybe because of the historic nature, that was that was something you're, you're glad you, you, you 
you chose to go through or, or felt you had to go through? As I said, at the beginning, I had that resentment because, as I said, I saw myself as a Jew. Now, I have gone through a process, three-year process, not even one year, three-year process, and it implied also the zip-zip. I mean, you know, in Judaism, <laughs> we take tips. <laughs> unintended. Oh, my God. So, so I even had to go through a circumcision process. This is, some, as an adult, I mean, this is something, gee, I mean, you're going you're gonna to have a second thought, right? So, so we did that. I mean, all the males in the group went through that process. The fact that I was part of a group, it was very interesting. The fact that I already knew what I was talking about put me in my relationship with Rabbi Edgar in, at, a different, at a different level because it was not just, it's not about what's a mezuzah, what's this, what's a sidu, what's a chumash. It was beyond, in my discussions with him, it was beyond the regular discussion. So I saw that as a, another way of learning also another way of building my own identity. Who is the Jew that I want to be? It's not enough that it's like when you have a bar mitzvah, you give them the certificate. And then what? What, what are you going to do with that? You're going to put it in your pocket. It's like, like the tribal ID, you know? Native Americans have the tribal Is that your tribal ID? It's a question. What do you do with that identity? It's an identity that's going to sit there in a corner in the shelf in your house, or it's an identity that you're going to put into action. For me, that was that was what was important. And this is why I got very involved in the Jewish community. Later on in 97, I moved, uh, I moved to Mallorca, and I was very active. In Mallorca, Mallorca has an Orthodox British community. That's when I improved, I had to improve my English. Um, the prayer books, everything, we use the Hertz Humash and the singer's prayer book. So everything was in English. And I was invited from the very beginning, I was invited to address the congregation every Friday. So it was me the one doing the, the, the drash, doing the sermon every Friday, which at the beginning was very interesting because I did several mistakes in English language, with the English. And then it's when I saw myself more and more, people were coming to me, inviting me, this is how I express it, people were inviting me to very private moments of their lives. One of the cases was a family in Mallorca whose child committed suicide. How do you address this with the family? In English, we have a word for when you lose your spouse. You can be a widow or a widower. You have a word to define when you lose your parent. You are an orphan. But which word defines when a parent loses a child? It's a pain that's beyond words. How do you address that with, with, the, with that family? I was calling Edgar. <laughs> you know what? I was calling the rabbi and say, hey, Edgar, I have this problem. What am I supposed to do? He gave, is this kind of a thing that I can tell you a couple more of these, like people having cancer, people being in the hospital in Mallorca, and they wanted some religious support or some, you know, pastoral care, what we call pastoral care today. So they wanted some pastoral care, and I was thrown into that. The secretary from the synagogue, she would call me and, hey, Siegel is at the hospital, or Davis is at the hospital. Can you go and visit? So you go there, and, and, and you talk, and you are present. For me, this is what, there was a moment when I said, wait, wait, hold on. You're doing this without having, 
without being prepared for that. I mean, you don't have, you're doing it from your gut, but you're not doing it from your head. You don't have the technical preparation for that. It's like me being a journalist. I have no idea how to write an article. I mean, I know how to write, but I have no idea how to write an article. You, you understand? So I cannot go, I mean, yeah, can I submit something to the inquirer? Can I submit something to the exponent? So for me, it was like that. This is what brought me into looking for, for um, rabbinical training. Because I really like what I'm doing. I really like this contact with the one-on-one. But on the other hand, I was doing it like totally like amateurish. I guess I'm curious, in, in um, certainly in North American Jewry, the liberal streams, the reconstructionist movement, the reform movement, mm-hmm. is very focused on, on lowering, lowering barriers to entry in Jewish life, on... on diversifying the Jewish community on welcoming you know non-Jewish family members in, you know as part of Jewish communities did 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 sort of coming from outside the you know outside the mainstream out, you know and having to undergo this process does it help you you know break you know break down barriers here yes uh First thing you need to understand that the role of religion in Europe and the role of religion in the States is very different. I'm going to say it's almost opposite. America has a very positive outlook on religion. In Europe, it has a very negative outlook. Because in Europe, religion has been used normally as a control, uh, social, uh, social control mechanism. Here, from the founding fathers, Churches have been in support of independence. Churches have been uh, having a positive input in the running of the country. Think about the 60s. Martin Luther King, what? Pastor. A pastor. And like this, I mean, the people who were involved in the, in the, in the civil rights movement, many of them were religious people. And this is back in the 60s. I and mean, even today, I mean, many people who are involved in social movements they have some sort of a religious background. Back in Europe, the equation is religious, yes, religion, no. And many people define themselves as not religious, period. Because there is a very negative perception of religion as a mechanism of control of the society. Also being a minority, a persecuted minority in Europe, and remember we're talking about 50 years or 60 years or 70 years now after the Shoah, the Jewish community is going to be very secluded. Um, if you have been in Europe, remember that you have to go. It's like going through the airport. You have, or even worse. Sure. And I'm not going to. I mean, you have many different. You have many different uh, security uh, steps that you have to do when you go into a you into a synagogue in Europe. I mean, from the metal arc, police outside. I mean, there are visual things that you can see from the outside, but there are also many things that happen inside. You have to identify yourself. If they don't know you, you have to bring your passport. You have to tell them, hey, I'm planning to come on such and such Friday, such and such Saturday. And this is the copy of my passport, and this is my ID, and this is where I will stay. So so you can identify yourself, so there's no... Here, one of the things that surprised me when I came here to the States for the first time, uh, and also in Israel, um, 
was that synagogues have windows. Wow. Back in Europe, synagogues don't have windows. Here, and I'm still something that I'm still in awe, is that you can get in and out of a synagogue without being stopped. Nobody's going to ask you for your driver license. Nobody's going to ask you, okay, open your arms and open, spread your, your legs, and uh, we're going to pass the, the metal detector. Nobody's doing it. I mean, here you come and go from a synagogue as a normal place. I mean, th- th- what I get here is a sense of normality. What I get there is a sense of abnor- abnormality. When you have such high degree of security around your places, that's not normal. Thinking about your background, where I think a lot of you know, there's a lot of talk about being at the cutting edge and um, being, you know, breaking boundaries. I wonder if you've thought much about it where you seem to be really at a line that's breaking hundreds of years of pattern. I mean, you did that within your own family where you had this big, you know, this um, I'm using air quotes, but a secret of being a converso family and you were part of a movement that broke the the way the synagogues were structured in Spain where you were part of a movement that went more progressive instead of um, trying to be something to everybody and trying to um, like be in a place that was strictly orthodox. Mm-hmm. Have you really kind of reflected on what like all of these changes that you've kind of, it almost sounds like you've been kind of at the forefront and you probably didn't really intend to be that. It seemed like it was more of a happenstance that you happened to be part of the synagogue at the time when the split happened. Do you reflect back on that and think like, wow, all of the, all of the changes? Or do you think about what's new coming ahead? Like what kind of goes through your thoughts when you look back and then look forward? I'm going to say that I'm a child of my generation, that I was attuned and I was just responding to what was happening in Spain at the time. I'm talking about the 80s. I mean, it's the end of the dictatorship. It's the beginning of the transition. It's the beginning of the democracy. It's, this is a quote-unquote young country. So, I mean, I mean remember, I mean, uh, anti-gay laws were eliminated in 1980s. You could go through a legal process and you could be thrown into jail, theoretically. I mean, not that that was happening at that point, but but those rules were still in the books. This is a country that's growing. The 90s representing Spain, it's the Olympic Games. It's the opening of the country. It's the coming, the country's coming into age, if you want. Spain becomes part of the European Union. With the European Union, you get that diversity. So that's what's very interesting there is that homogeneity that on one hand you have in the country, one God, one king, one country, and on the other hand you have this diversity that being part of the European Union brings. So that was the the, 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 the element there. So I was very I was very um, open and attuned to that. It's not that I have, I think, well, I'm now, now with age and experience, wisdom comes, one would say. So now I can sit down and see more like where things can go. But back in the, back in the day, I was in my 20s. I was a, an, early, an early young man. So um, it was more like a reaction to something that 
X, Y, or Z needs to be done, and you need to lead. You are put into a situation, you have no choice, basically. I mean, the choice is to do it or not to do it. So, so that was, that was the, for me, that was, the, it was a call, if you want. You have been called to do that. I mean, since we're, 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 we're talking about, talking about your, your homeland, I guess I'll officially open a can of worms and, and, and ask uh, <laughs> what, what you'd like people to know or understand about, um, the the constitutional crisis that that we're we're seeing play play out now in Spain. I'm 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 finding that the most of the reporting coming out of there is is very shallow, and I'm I'm personally sort of at a loss to really understand the forces at at play. It's not different from I'm going to say from many of the independent processes that you had in South America. When you look at the history of Mexico, you look at the history of Colombia and Venezuela, basically you have like um, the country has a right versus left, but also it has a tendency between being a central state versus being a federal state. The same thing happens in Spain. You have this right to left, you have Socialist Party, you have Communist Party, you have this, you have that, and you have the right-wing party. But then you have the stand- those tendencies between being a central or a state that goes towards a centralism, or you have a state that goes towards a federalism. And the present system is something in between. It's what we call the system of autonomies. So you are you have autonomous regions. The question is then, of how much degree those autonomous regions have. And what has happened there is that there was a perception that there was an equality and that you're supposed to be equal, but there was a sense of inequality. And that sense of inequality has been in crescendo, 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 especially since the financial crisis in 2008. So for the last 10 years, that upsetness or that uneasiness with the financial situation has been growing. Add to all this that Catalonia in the specific has a specific language, a specific culture, a specific identity. And this is not necessarily well understood in the rest of Spain. For many t- for many years, the political strategy has been, okay, let's negotiate. For the last 10 years since the financial crisis, because money is so tight, there is no room where to negotiate. You, you understand? So things are getting more and more tense. So at the end, this is what we're seeing now. Th- this constitutional crisis is the outcome of 10 years from my perspective. And I'm, I'm not a politician. I'm not, I, I have not been in Spain. So basically I'm talking theory. But from my perspective, the way I'm reading it is this is the outcome of 10 years of wishy-wash attitudes and not being clear and not tackling issues. So this has been kind of an illness that has developed into a cancer or has developed into something bigger. Is the Jewish community in, in Barcelona coming down on one side or another or oh, is gosh. it split like like the rest of uh, society? The Jewish community is not different from any other community. So the Jewish community is split it. 
you have people who are especially the older generations they're going to be more like pro spanish more like what we call unionist and then you're going to have the younger generations that are going to be more pro independent and i can i can show you i'm in different chats and i can show you the amount of chattiness <laughs> in the whatsapp groups that i that i belong to uh, the degree of activity that i mean yesterday Yesterday I had a cell phone free day. So when I pick up the cell phone at 9 p.m., I had 226 messages from one of the group. So they have been very active. Yes, there is, there is a concern. There are people who are pro, there are people. Again, that goes back into, into that thing about being a minority. That was one of my discussions with one of the members. Now he's the president of the Mallorca, the, of the Mallorca Jewish community. He's from Ceuta, Abraham Barcelona, he's from Ceuta. And we were discussing politics many, many, many years ago. My position was, hey, you're Jewish. You are a minority. You should be more, I mean, if you're logic, I mean, if you're coherent, you should be more attuned to the rights of the minorities. Because he was saying, why Catalans want to be different? Why Catalans want to keep that identity? Why Catalans don't give up on Catalan language and Catalan identity and they take Spanish identity in the Spanish language? Mm. That was his argument. And I say, for the same reason that they can say you, why do you want to be Jewish? Why to keep being Jewish? Why do you want to eat strange things? And why do you want to keep a different calendar? Why do you want to do a different thing? Oh, because this is the way I was, I was born, I was raised, this is part of, my, of who am I? I said the same thing for me. This is, I was born in Catalan culture. I'm, this is my first language. This is my culture. This is, y y you understand? So I said, being a minority, you should be more attuned to the rights of the minorities because defending the rights of the minorities is defending also your right. That was the end of the discussion. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, but yeah, I mean, that has been there for many, 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 many years. And at this point, again, as I was saying before, and of the record, this is an issue of two values. On one hand, you have the legality, and the other hand, on the other hand, you have the problem of the legitimacy. Having a vote should be an, a legitimate exercise of democracy and freedom, on one hand. On the other hand, you have, I understand that you have rules in the books that you have to follow. Which value trumps what? Can you have an illegitimate legality or can you have a Ill an illegal legitimacy? Y you know what I mean? Which value trumps which one? Right, and I said before we went on the air that I have a sense that most Americans would understand this through through our own experience of of succession and and the feeling that you know despite our 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 values placed on freedom and that that succession is sort of out of out of bounds and it depend i guess depends where 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 in the country you were born and who you know but in the what country your parents taught but you. in the country you have one culture one language it was just a matter of political it was from my perspective and again i'm not a an Amer I'm not a specialist in american history but from my perspective it was a matter of which is going to be the legal system that's going to rule this country federal versus confederal this is the Gettysburg Address, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. That's a plea, or that's a, or that's a subscription of, hey, our fathers wanted a 
federal system. Doing something different would be, be uh, again, this is what Abraham Lincoln says at Gettysburg, doing something different would be treason to the intention of our founding fathers. But here you have from Maine to Florida, we speak the same language. We have more or less, we have a common culture with diversity. I mean, there is a common culture, there is a common approach, there is common values that define you as American. And whatever we are in the in the planet, we can identify each other. That's not the case of what we're talking here. We're talking what we're talking in Catalonia versus Spain, it's a matter of identity. It's a matter of language and cultural values that are different. That there is a diversity there. And this is what's boiling now. It's a boiling it's boiling down to an identity conflict, which is gonna be a loose loose. When you have an identity conflict it's very difficult to manage. So that's I mean that's that's Yes, I understand what you're saying, but I say there there is one key element. It's identity. Wow. Um, thank you so much. Thank you very thank much you for so having me here. Thank you so much. And then you can also check out Rabbi Jordy's blog and his website, so you can kind of keep up with his Torah and learn more about him at rabbijendra.net. You can also see more at our website, which is trendingjewish.com fireside.fm so i am rachel burgess here with ryan schwartzman you've been listening to trending jewish Thank you.